Uh, so good to be with you guys. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2. That'll be on page 836 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. You can grab a Bible. You can even have a Bible if you want to take it home with you. And these chair pockets uh, nearby or at the middle side of these aisles, uh, if you're in one of these side aisles here. So uh, please hail a Bible. If you don't have one, you're going to want one for this morning. So how often does, in your life does someone try to convince you of something that sounds really good, but your experience tells you otherwise? All right, like, so for example, this week, this happened in very normal experiences. I see an advert, $1.99, a garden hose sprayer, $1.99, says guaranteed to last. And my first thought is, yeah, my experience kind of says otherwise of that, right? Or uh, talking with a, a new resident who optimistically, and, and God bless him, I'm trying to be an optimistic person as well, he's a, he's a cycler. He says, you know, I, I keep my bicycle outside. I lock it, keep it outside. I don't, I don't think it's going to rust. I hear you, brother, but my experience <laughs> says otherwise, right? Third year in a row, my family, I love them, God bless them, takes me to the turtle farm on Father's Day uh, saying, <laughs> we think you'll love it. <laughs> yeah, you can guess, uh, yeah, different experience. I love them. Uh, <laughs> We, we occasionally encounter this in the Bible, too. We encounter a claim in the Bible that seems so just out there and fantastical, we can't believe it. And we even just skip over it sometimes because our experience says otherwise. We'll kind of read it, and then we'll go like, uh, okay, on to the next verse. We're going to focus on this kind of claim this morning in chapter 2 of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. I, I've preached through Ephesians 2 because it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, if not my favorite like full chapter in the Bible, probably is my favorite. I preached through it eight to ten times. And I have to admit to you guys, I've skipped preaching on this claim that Paul's made. Well, I've largely skipped over it. Uh, but this time is different because since August when I began planning the series on Ephesians, this big and bold claim that Paul makes has, has just haunted me. And, and not, the, not like the... The scary kind of haunt, like, like Holy Ghost haunt, like it's just been with me, I've been thinking about it, it's been on my mind. It comes from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's in the middle of this wonderful passage, so it might help to get a bit of context in case you weren't with us last Sunday, which I preached on this text fully. So here's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in sort of a quick nutshell. Paul says we all begin life walking in one direction. And because we're walking with this unseen companion who is selfish, who is uh, hateful, who is evil, we start out life doing selfish deeds and living selfishly. We walk into those sorts of things in our lives. It's very natural for us. But God turns lives around for those who trust in Jesus Christ. So if you trust Jesus, your new walking companion is Jesus. It is Christ himself. And so he turns us around to the opposite direction. So now we are walking with Christ who loves us, who is powerful, who is good. And because of that, we naturally walk in good works as we walk down the right path, the right way in godliness. 
And that's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And it's glorious as we find out what has happened to us who have believed in Christ. Now, followers of Jesus don't literally strap on sandals and walk with Jesus in the flesh. Right? We don't actually see Jesus anymore because Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. So he can, he can empower those who follow him to populate the world with good works. It's wonderful. He can populate the world everywhere because Jesus can be everywhere through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, we know, ascended into heaven is up there. His followers are down here, except that Paul says something different. <laughs> Paul says something quite different, in fact. Uh, he claims something so seemingly out there and fantastical. We're tempted to read it and say, my experience tells me otherwise. So let's read it together. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. And we're at the point where we've been walking in one direction, selfishly, selfish deeds. <clears throat> Verse 4, chapter 2 of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the claim, the big claim Paul is making here from his words that followers of Jesus are currently raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And I felt compelled to preach on this, not just because it seems kind of odd, because we read in the next verse in verse 7. Now look at that again in verse 7. I want, I'm going to show here up on the screen uh, a different translation. We just read from the English Standard Version. This is the New Living Translation, which I think gets to the heart of what's going on here. This happens. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. It's as, as if God will point the big foam finger towards us and say, look, look what I did. Look what I did in raising them and seating them with Christ, not only eventually, but while they still lived in this dusty, bedraggled, beaten down world that they live in. I raised them and I seated them with Christ. It's amazing. So it's important to God. It's important for us. And yet our experience says otherwise. Number one, uh, I have never physically seen Jesus. I hope when I am raised and I sit with him in heaven, I, I will see him face to face. I promise that. We will see him face to face. First John 3, 1 and 2. We know we will. But it hasn't happened for me. It happened to that kid and heaven is for real. If you saw the, read the book, saw the movie, apparently he got to do that. He had surgery, went to be with Jesus. He saw this. I, I have not seen this. Experience tells me otherwise. Not only just, just sort of a common sense experience, but just that, that spiritual experience. Like, what was your day like yesterday? Did you feel raised with Christ, seated with him during your day? <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit about mine. Our day began waking up at 5.45 a.m., because our, our children, God bless them, wanted to do beach photography by the light of sunrise. All right, because that would be a great picture. So why not? Wake, wake your parents up before six. Let's get out there. It's our one day to sleep in, but that's okay. Um, it included, and they got some great pictures. It included time in our shed, our outdoor shed, 
organizing heavy tools, moving them around, eventually culminated in two trips to, to Mount Trashmore, included as well using red solo cups to fill, take sand and water and fill up the base of a basketball hoop, basketball goal, so that it wouldn't fall down again during our tropical storm we did recently. It was removing and carrying a dead iguana from right in front of our house, a fresh kill, fresh road kill, disposing of it somewhere else. Where is sitting with Christ in heavenly places in this kind of day? They probably like your kind of day, similar to it. I want to try to work through this, because that's in real life, right? I want to work through where is sitting, being raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places on that kind of day by asking two questions. What does it mean to be raised and seated with Christ? And what does raised and seated with Christ actually look like? Let's get into it here. What does raised and seated with Christ actually mean? It means that we are united with Christ where he is. Not with Christ where he is. And where is Christ? So the last time people saw Christ while on this earth, he was with his apostles in Jerusalem. He was sharing with them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, giving them some marching orders. And then this happens. Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Or sorry, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so that's the last time we see Jesus physically. He is then in heaven, not just anywhere, but seated at the right hand of the Father, seated on the throne. Colossians 3, 1 says it this way. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're told a little bit more about this. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is this glorious throne where earth and sky, there's no room for anything else, just Jesus, just his throne. Where is that in my life? How am I united to Jesus where he is? There's two types of ways we're united to Jesus, two types of union. I I am united to Jesus first representationally. Romans 5, let me tell you what this means. Romans 5 talks about this idea that every person is in Adam, the first human who ever lived, right? Every every person's in Adam before trusting Jesus Christ. And we are in Christ after we trust Christ. What this means is we are in Adam because Adam represents the entire human race. And if Adam, put in that garden, would have continued to walk with Jesus, would have continued to walk in righteousness, then we would have begun life in righteousness. We would have been counted in righteousness with Adam. But as it is, Adam did not continue down that path. Adam fell. The punishment for him was was death. Christ, on the other hand, stood firm where Adam did not. He is righteous, so those who trust him are also considered righteous. He represents us. He has been raised, so we are raised. He has been seated at the right hand of the Father, so we are seated at the right hand of the Father. That's how this works. Theologians call this idea, if you're interested, federalism, uh, because it's kind of like, it's analogous to citizens of a country being sort of bound to 
both good decisions and bad decisions made by their government. All right, so for example, uh, I'm an American citizen. All right, and if for some reason my country does something dumb, you know, like for example, uh, like if we start a war with North Korea, you could come to me and say, I hear you guys decided to go to war. Right? You would say that because they represent me. The decisions of someone else represents me. I'm a citizen of that country. This is important that we have Jesus as our representative, not Adam. Adam would be a disaster. Adam would be death, separation from God forever. We have Jesus as our representative. And that's important because we won't always feel like we're raised from death. We won't always feel like we're seated next to Jesus at the right hand of God, but we can trust that Jesus is representing us anyway, that he cares for us, that he's interceding in our lives, that he's taking our prayers and he's, he's presenting them to the Father at his right hand. So that's really important, but we're also united to Jesus experientially. This is the kind of union Jesus speaks of when he says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you're going to bear much fruit. But if you're apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, if you stick with me, if, if, you, if you're united to me experientially in the way you know me and love me and care for me, and I you, you're going to produce much fruit. It's going to make a difference in your life. Jesus wasn't thinking here of some technicality. That's, of course, doctrinally true in our minds. He's thinking of a way of relating and experiencing him that makes a difference to our everyday lives. So what does being raised and seated with Christ actually look like? Let's talk about that. Uh, Six years ago, we had our our first Christmas Eve service at Sunrise uh, Sunrise by the Sea. We we, we did it once at the Little Harkwell Theater, and then we decided, hey, you know, we can go to the dark park over there in South Sound, we can, we can worship God and sing carols to him and celebrate the birth of Christ by the ocean. And so we did, and we've continued that tradition ever since. The tradition began with me showing up, me and the sound guy, in 2011, him looking at the instruments on stage and thinking, okay, how are we going to power all these things? We're in this big amphitheater. This, this, this is a natural amphitheater right by the ocean. There's not a building within 100 meters. Right, well, there is, about 50 meters, 60 meters, but it's far away, and that building appears to be, you know, kind of on lockdown. How are we going to power this? I point to the extension cord, the 200-foot extension cord I brought, one of those big, thick yellow ones like this one here on stage. I said, we're going we're gonna, to, it's already plugged in, we're already in there. Because he couldn't see that the cord had traveled from the amphitheater, sort of around the bend, around the semicircle, over a footpath. Through, through a garden, into a screened-in porch that I could barely get into, and into a single plug in the back of that porch, which we hoped worked. And it did. Couldn't see the outlet. It was far away. One power source, but it worked. Having been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places, we are Christ extension cords. We are Christ extension cords. We can't see the power source but we're there anyway, one cord. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We will one day, but we can't yet. And yet, we're there. We are there. And yet, we're also connected to here. We're connected to heaven, and we live in this tension, 
and we're connected to earth where that power source is so desperately needed. So in Christ, we are his extension cords, taking power from one reality and bringing it into another on on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a wonderful privilege. That's where I think God wants to help us today, to, to be that extension cord connecting a power source in heaven where we are to where we also are on this earth. So I'm going to share a few possibilities of what this looks like. I've got to tell you, I'm no expert on this. I can share from experience and from God's word. That's what I'll do. Three possibilities for what this looks like. Number one, there's an extension from heaven to earth of intimacy. Of intimacy. We are literally in some way seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Then what does this actually look like when Jesus was on earth? When people sat next to him? Uh, before his death in 2000, James, James Montgomery Boyce, he was this great pastor, uh, served at 10th Presbyterian in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United States. Uh, served there for three decades. And he preached a series of uh, really stirring sermons from Ephesians, including one focused on this line. And I couldn't find much on it, being raised with Christ and seated with Christ. And he concludes in one way, what does this look like? I, I'm not completely sure, he says. It's a bit of a mystery. But he does suggest one thing. He does suggest that we look at what it was like to be intimate with Jesus while on earth. What it was like to recline with, to sit with Jesus on earth. And so you might remember John chapter 13. That's what he points to. John 13. Remember Jesus' account, or sorry, John's account of the Last Supper when all the apostles are gathered to be with him. And you may remember in that account that John describes about himself that he was sitting with Jesus. He was actually reclining with Jesus, reclining on his shoulder with him intimately. Jesus had just announced who would betray him. And Peter motions to John and says, hey, you know, ask him who it's going to be. And so John, intimate next to Jesus, whispers to him, you know, Jesus, who is it? Lord, who is it? John 13, 25, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So Boyce concludes, he says, you know, that place, that place, that picture is like the picture Paul gives us here. That this, if we're seated with Christ, if if John was seated with Christ in a place of intimacy, of love, of tenderness, so are we seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's a place of intimacy and it's a place of revelation where Jesus can tell us things that we might not know otherwise. Friends, that's where we are now. If you've trusted Jesus, you're in a place of intimacy and revelation, seated with Jesus. But again, I remind us, we live in a place of early morning wake-ups, messy projects, dead animals, things of that nature. That's where we live. So, so what do we do then? We, what does this look like? It means making time for intimacy with Jesus. So often, I, I, one of the things I get the prayer requests I've gotten the most over the years in pastoral ministry is, Ryan, pray for me that I will have time to spend with Jesus. And my response increasingly, not to be sort of this cantankerous old curmudgeon guy, but is I'll make time. Like, make time. Like, Jesus isn't going to open up a 25th hour. He's not going to do it. Make time. What did this look like for me? i waking up early. I've been eating breakfast. One of my sons and I were doing this little devotional together called Exploring the Bible, a Bible reading plan for kids. If you're interested in this, it's pretty great. You journal through uh, different verses and you go through the Bible. 
pretty brief. It's wonderful. We're doing it together. We're trying it in the mornings. So I get it out, Genesis 4. I'm just sitting there eating breakfast, waking myself up with God's word. But it was a place of intimacy. God brought me near to him. He, he revealed something I needed to hear, even though it was really only five or ten minutes. But it was real. And it was wonderful. So we're an extension of intimacy from heaven to earth. We're also an extension of ability from heaven to earth. One implication of being raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places is that our experience of reality and the decisions we make because of that experience are no longer bound to the way we normally experience reality, right? Through our eyes, through our ears, sight, touch, smell, the five senses. We sort of experience life that way, interpret what we're going to do as a result. We get new senses because of being in Christ. We get a new, a new way to see life, experience life, new, new senses. Not a sixth sense. I don't see dead people. Not saying that kind of thing. But, but really, what we're talking about here is, is things like discernment. Paul, Paul talks about this a little bit in Ephesians 1. We talked about this. Remember when Paul prays for God's people that the, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so they might know the potential in other people, they might know the value of themselves that we couldn't see otherwise? just by looking or by hearing. But we can see when the eyes of our hearts are being enlightened. There's, there's, there's a gift, there's an ability to discern that we can't have otherwise. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual blessing. When you trust Christ, you have this power to see things you couldn't normally see in the world we live in. For me, this supernatural ability looks like texting people a Bible verse I read that morning. Just because as I read it, God put them on my heart. And every once in a while, people will say, man, wow, you didn't even know that that verse meant a ton to me and applied to my situation. It can look like, you know, asking the right question you know, with other people to draw them out. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, that the purposes of a man's heart is deep waters, but a man of understanding or discernment, can be translated, draws those purposes out. A lot of times this requires some discernment to draw out by asking a good question. Or it might be seeing someone this morning and you just see them worshiping and, and you know, God keeps putting them on your heart and you walked up to them afterwards and say, hey, I know this may be uncomfortable, but I just felt like God put you on my heart to pray for you. And you do it. And I've seen so many people say, like, God sent that person at just the right time and they took a chance by faith. It's the kind of thing this might look like. It's a, it's a supernatural kind of discernment. Not too long ago, a person was sharing with me how a friend of hers used to be involved in the occult, used to be involved in, in witchcraft. While serving the demonic, they had the ability to see things that others could not. They had this ability. From a dark power, they had this ability. And specifically, this person said they could see Christians. And they could see Christians were different, that they had this power on them. She said, I could, I could see Christians coming from down the way. She could see the power on them even though, whether they knew it or not. And it just struck me. It's like, man, if we only knew the power, the enablement God has given us because of Jesus Christ. We can ask God to help us be an extension of that ability to serve people here on earth. I keep taking us back to yesterday. I'll do it again. There I am in monotonous labor with my eldest son, Mason. We're sitting there taking, you know, plastic cups, and slowly pouring them into a hole, two holes about the size of my thumb, you know, in this massive base. 
There we go. There we go. We're there for about an hour. And it was an opportunity for me to use the sermon to ask God, okay, what, what's a question I can ask my, my now teenage son that would really help me find out what's going on more in his life? Right? Help draw him out a little bit. God, give me discernment here. Except I never said that. <laughs> I didn't. It was an opportunity that I missed. Because I wasn't thinking, okay, how can I bring a little bit of heaven to earth? How can I be used by God to be an extension of his power and his love here on earth? I debated sharing that because it's an opportunity I missed, but I think that's important. Because I think so many times we we just miss these opportunities to be that extension cord, to connect people to God. I had not because I asked not, as the Bible says. But there are opportunities like that for us all the time. And finally, I think this looks like seating, you know, being seated with Jesus, being raised with Jesus. It looks like an extension of authority. Let's say an extension of authority. Jesus' seat next to the Father is a throne. It's a throne. It, it, it symbolizes that Jesus is king. All authority in heaven and earth, he says, has been given to him. It's the same seat that was described 900 years before in Psalm 110 by David when he said, The Lord says to my Lord, In other words, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is in charge. He is the king. And we sit with him on the throne. We have the authority to speak forgiveness into people's lives when that's needed. We have authority to confront evil when that's needed. And and oftentimes, both are needed. Again, we'll go back to what Jesus said while he was still on earth. Read with me, if you would, from Luke chapter 10. Verses 17 through 20, it's up on the screen. Jesus sends out people to confront evil. It says this, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. One of the things I love, 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 Love about this example of Jesus sending people out as he sends 72 and not a few. I have often, I think that many of us think about confronting evil and and rebuking evil when they see it, rebuking Satan when they see people's lives crumbling before them. They think, well, that's for the pastor to get involved in. That's for a select few, maybe with that gift to get involved in, not me. Why do you think Jesus didn't send out just the 12 disciples? Why did he send out 72? I think it's to show us, look, this is going to be for everyone, everyone who follows me, to confront evil, to rebuke evil. So listen, you know, we are raised with Christ. We are seated in heavenly places, but that experience, experience of our real life tugs at us, telling us we live in a world of messiness, of clutter, of just sweat. Sometimes it's trying to get our kids going to the right places, trying to make sure we get somewhere on time, things not working the way they should, things dying on your front lawn, and yet our power source is there on the other side of the extension cord. You can't see them, but you can know them. So I told you that during my little five-minute time eating breakfast, about to go out to our, our sunrise beach photography experience, I was reading this devotional. I was reading the Bible. Genesis 4. I was reading this story about Cain and Abel. Remember that story maybe from Sunday school or otherwise, Genesis 4? Cain is jealous of Abel's gift to God. So God warns Cain. He says, 
look, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is for you. Its desire is to have you. So you must rule over it. You must master it. In that moment, in Jesus' throne room, intimately with him, he was warning me. Because in the next few moments, as he started to walk out the door, uh, everyone was just getting stuff together. Uh, and everybody had taken a chair. And I didn't have one. So it irritated me. And then, uh, and then I, I turned around to go look for a different kind of maybe sitting instrument. And all of a sudden, everybody's left without me to the beach. All right, I mean, so I start to voice my irritation. I'm just, I'm just, ah. And then, I, and then I get there, and I find out one of our kids has actually stayed behind. He has not left for the beach yet, so I'm walking back to our house. In that moment, I realize, wait a minute. Sin, the devil, is crouching at my door. I just, just very simply said to myself, because this is what this looks like in real life. Satan, I know you would want to divide our family, but I rebuke you in Jesus' name. It's real. It's simple. But it's taking the power of being with Jesus in heaven and bringing it to earth. And that is what this can look like for our lives as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this amazing promise that those who trust you are made alive. We are raised together with you. And we are seated with you, Jesus, in the heavenly places. What an amazing privilege. God, God, help us not just hear that and think, wow, but actually tap into the power source. Actually trust you, Jesus, to believe that we are right there with you, raised in heaven, somehow, mysteriously raised in heaven, sitting with you on the throne next to God the Father. Help us tap into that power source and bring that power here that is ours to earth. Help us seek you for that. Help us humble ourselves for that. Help us have faith for that. that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.